Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. 
Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Good evening, children of the night. Last week I promised that I'd have my thoughts together about the Lost Weekend Film Festival and tell you all about the interesting horror films that I saw. The tricky bit is that, well, I'm not quite sure if I saw anything that I'd say is horror. I'll quickly mention a few that are maybe horror, or are at least a little bit weird. The Endless is a movie about a cult, and there is a brief Cthulian reference earlier in the film that might be the filmmakers linking it to the mythos. There are elements to the film that show its indie budget and an editorial eye that could have stood to be more, shall we say, judicious. However, I did enjoy this one, and I'd recommend you check out The Endless. A real gem of the weekend was a film starring Joaquin Phoenix called You Were Never Really Here. The trappings of the film would put it in a gritty action film, but the main character suffers from some deep-seated post-traumatic stress from which he has regular flashbacks. It also deals with the subject of child sex trafficking. It's an emotionally challenging movie. I'd give this one a recommendation as well. You'll remember that I mentioned that I had sponsored a film during the weekend in the name of Tales to Terrify. I also just mentioned that none of the films that I saw fit solidly in the horror category, and that includes this one. November is the name of the movie. It is an Estonian film that deals with the devil, werewolves, magical servants, and spirits of the dead returning to visit family. But despite all of that, it's not a horror movie. It's a movie about love. It might give you nightmares, though. It's strange. The fourth and last one I'll mention is Annihilation. This one made the film festival, but is now in wide release. I'd be surprised if some of you haven't seen it already. Jeff Vandermeer's book from which the movie comes from, which is quite popular, I describe as a horror story wearing science fiction clothing. The movie, on the other hand, I'd reverse that. It's a science fiction movie that has some horror elements to it. And just like the book, I have found myself in the minority. Both book and movie seem incredibly well-liked, and I didn't particularly care for either. Not a strong dislike, just not my cup of tea. You'll probably like both, so give them a go. Let's hear some stories. George Gatronis lives in the wilderness of northern Sweden. He makes a living designing book covers. He sometimes writes. His stories have appeared in Lost Signals, 13 Stories of Transformation, Year's Best Hardcore Horror, and forthcoming in Pantheon Magazine and Turn to Ash, Volume 3. Listen with me, Children of the Night, to George Catronus's Kingdom Come, originally appearing in Broken Worlds, September 2015. Christopher felt the beginning of a migraine coming on. He absentmindedly reached into the drawer of his desk for the bottle of scotch. The storm had been gathering for hours, the black clouds looming over the city. This one's going to be a good one, he thought, and took a swill from the bottle. Out of habit, he looked towards the study's open door. His wife didn't like seeing him drinking like this. She said it made her think of her alcoholic father, always sneaking off to get a drink. He met him once at Thanksgiving. 
He used to store bottles all around the house and take sips whenever he got a chance, his wife said. He put the bottle down on the desk and stared out the window. The raindrops landing there came slow but steady. He looked at the backyard and hoped that the rain wouldn't flood the basement again. He was ashamed to realize how old and worrisome he'd become. This wasn't like him, worrying about weather and his precious basement. Hell, rain never put a dent in his plans, even if they included a trip to the beach. Rain was rain, nothing to be bothered by, nothing to ruin your day. But that was a long time ago. These days, his left knee hurt whenever the weather got wet. He left the study and went downstairs to the kitchen. His wife was out today, giving him some much-needed me-time to try and get some work done. He opened the fridge and grabbed a bottle of water and an apple. His diet was another thing that was different these days. Doctor's orders. He took a bite out of the apple and went over to the couch to watch some TV. There was a breaking news segment about a storm hitting the east shore. It looked bad. After Katrina, people got skittish when the weather turned like this, to the point when you never knew if the news reports were honest or bullshit. He decided it was the latter, put his feet up on the table, and after a while, fell asleep. When he woke up, night had fallen and the storm was raging outside. He glanced at the clock on the kitchen counter and rubbed his eyes. It was late in the afternoon. He wondered if his wife had come home and found him sleeping, but the dark house told him that wasn't the case. He got up and called out after his wife, but got no reply. She was probably visiting one of her friends. Didn't she say something about that? I guess I should have listened more closely, he thought, as he walked around the house, turning on the lights. His knee was acting up, forcing him to walk with a limp. Getting old, he said to the empty house. Somehow saying it out loud made it worse. He looked outside from one of the windows, but he couldn't see much. He decided it was time to call Helen and find out where she was. He had to get dinner started, and maybe she could pick up a movie from the video store. It wasn't often they got a night alone at home with each other. He picked up the phone and dialed his wife's cell phone. The voice on the other end of the line said the number couldn't be reached. He hung up. He thought about calling his daughter, but she was two states away, and he'd only succeed in making her worry. Like he was now. He probably should have called her earlier. She was supposed to be back hours ago. Maybe the storm took down some trees, and the roads were closed off. He opened the front door and was impressed by the strength of the wind. There was a minivan parked on their driveway, the minivan his wife drove. So she did get home. The headlights and overhead lights weren't on. He waited to see if his wife would get out of the car, but there was no movement. Then he noticed how strange the rain looked when it fell. He turned the light towards the minivan, which was now somehow painted black instead of the original deep blue it was when they bought it two years ago. Even the windshield and the windows were dark. The sight was absurd, the darkness and the storm making it really hard to see, but he was sure this was their car. The plate numbers matched, and who would have parked the same car in a different color on their driveway anyway? 
He was about to make a run for the car, but something about the rain made him think twice. Then he saw the bird. It must have been a sparrow, but Jack didn't know what the hell it was now. It was completely covered by whatever the rain was carrying, and it was struggling to take flight. Long strands of black matter were stretching between its feathers in the ground. It looked like a bird trapped in oil, unable to spread its wings or move. It looked like the rain was trying to eat it. He went back inside and put on a jacket and a raincoat. He made a run for the minivan. He tried to avoid the puddles of black that were everywhere on his front yard. Whatever it was, it didn't prove too difficult to walk on, nor was it as sticky as he feared. He ran to the car and used one gloved hand to throw open the driver's side door. The car was empty. There were shopping bags on the passenger seat, but nothing else. Then he noticed the smears of black on the upholstery and on the steering wheel. His heart sunk. Christopher ran back to the porch and shook off the raincoat. He looked out across the street and called after his wife. There was no reply. He called after her a few more times, his panic mounting. None of this made sense. The house was just a few feet from the car. Where could she have gone? He took off his shoes and clothes and let them fall on the wooden floor of the porch. He didn't want to bring whatever covered them into his house. Once inside, he sat down, trying to ignore the panicked voice in his head that threatened to send him running outside, screaming. He tried to figure out what was going on, what that black matter could be. Chemical warfare? He tried the phone again, but it wasn't working. He turned on the TV, but the only thing he was getting on all channels was the emergency broadcast message amid the screeching beeps and tones designed to get your attention. The Office of Civil Defense has issued the following message. This is an event warning. This is an event warning. Event warning means that an unspecified environmental disaster has been detected. Important instructions will follow in 30 seconds. This warning applies to all areas receiving this message. Immediately seek shelter. The safest place to be during an event is in a basement. If no basement is available, seek shelter in the lowest floor of the building. Remember to stay away from window. He turned it off. He had a wife and daughter somewhere out there, and he was supposed to just stay inside? He paced the house and looked out the windows, but there were no signs of her. He could see a fire somewhere downtown, but couldn't make out which buildings were burning. He sat down and put his head in his hands, unable to think clearly, feeling the migraine coming on again. Whenever he got one, he was unable to do anything besides lie down and keep a pillow over his eyes to shut out any kind of light. He tried to calm down. He could hold it at bay if he didn't get too worked up. He went upstairs and sat on their bed. Their bed, the one they'd shared for 25 years now. He knew something was wrong, that there was no logical reason for his wife to be wandering outside in this weather, no reason her car would be parked 20 steps from the house, unlocked and empty. Something was wrong, but there wasn't much he could do except sit there and try and keep his headache at bay. The sound came from above like something scraping against the roof. They didn't have any trees that tall, and he had never heard a sound like it before. They didn't have an attic. 
Almost against his will, he got up and approached the window. He opened it a bit, holding it against the wind that threatened to throw it open against the wall. The sound of the storm was now much stronger, much closer to him. The air didn't smell the way it usually did when it rained. This rain, it carried something different. It smelled like ashes. There, outside his second-floor bedroom window, 20 feet off the ground, was his wife. He recognized her even though she was completely covered by the dark matter that was still falling on her, drop by drop. He could see the red top she had left the house in that morning peeking from underneath the dark, and he could recognize the large hoop earrings he bought her as a gift on their last vacation. Her mouth and eyes were shut, covered by the oily substance. She was knocking on the window like she wanted to be let inside. When Jack didn't move, she flew in, crashing through the window. Her movement was erratic, but effortless. The window exploded inwards, scattering pieces of glass and wood around the room. She flew in, her feet still not touching the floor, just her toes dragging lightly against the wood. She shrieked. Then, before his eyes, the flesh of her forearms split open, and a pair of fanged maws like those of a Venus flytrap protruded from her flesh. Within them, a dozen black tendrils flailed wildly, reaching out to him. Jack frantically tried to keep her from touching him, falling in his desperate attempt to get away from the thing that used to be his wife. He scuttled on the floor like an insect until his back hit the closet door, and he just sat there, looking up at the thing. It spoke, its voice like gravel, scraping against cement, like its teeth were all broken and floating around in its mouth. I can't see, it said, and Jack winced at the sound, which still carried something of his wife's voice. He crawled towards the door, but the thing seemed to hear him and moved closer to him, so he stopped. Make a sound, baby. Call my name so I can find you. Please, the thing said, as if trying to imitate the personality that once belonged to the body it occupied. The hairs on his neck stood up. He tried to think of a way out, but couldn't see how he could escape the room without letting the creature know where he was. The tendrils were now feeling their way around the room, touching the bed and the walls of the bedroom, leaving behind dark smears. He bolted out the door as fast as he could, the creature whipped its head around at surprising speed, and one of the tendrils managed to grab his ankle. The searing pain traveled along his leg and up to his spine, but in his panicked state he managed to kick it loose. He stumbled free and out into the corridor. He took the steps, two at a time, grasping the banister with both hands. He reached the landing and looked back to see this thing levitating at the top of the staircase. He heard a sound behind him something scraping at the front door trying to get in. He didn't dare to think what stood behind that door, but knew that escape route was closed off. He ran into the kitchen and grabbed a knife from the holder. He didn't know what good it would do, but he felt better holding a weapon. The pain in his leg was still present, but was beginning to fade. He knew he could get out of this if he just had time to think this through, but time was one of the things he didn't have. The creature shrieked in the living room, joining the wail of whatever was outside the door, a mix of human crying and a howl. He remembered that his neighbors had a dog, 
a mean Rottweiler they kept in their backyard, and he prayed to God that what he feared wasn't true. One of those things with four legs and the ability to outrun him would mean his death. He hid behind one of the counters, trying to gain some time, but the creature was already there. Come be with us, Jack. Come be with your family. That sibilant voice again, like the sound of sand being carried by waves. He knew what it was trying to do, but it terrified him that it was smart enough to try and deceive him by using his love for his family. It was smarter than he thought. God knows how smart it really was. Daddy, please tell me where you are. Even though the voice was low and guttural, he could still recognize his daughter's speech pattern. It had her, too. Whatever they were, his daughter was now one of them. The two people he loved in this world were gone, and there was only one way to be with them again. He stood up and looked at the thing one last time. It didn't really look like his wife anymore, but he tried to imagine her standing there, like she often did in the mornings, a cup of tea in one hand. He ran towards the back door and threw himself against it, breaking it and falling outside onto the sleek grass. Raindrops started hitting him immediately, one of them landing on his cheek, the rest across his arms and back. Soon he was standing in the rain, with his face towards the sky, like a little kid playing, trying to catch raindrops with his tongue. It didn't take long. That was George Catronus's Kingdom Come, as read by Darren Marlar. Darren is the creator-slash-host of the horror podcast Weird Darkness, as well as a professional full-time voice artist and lover of dark stories. He can be found at www.weirddarkness.com. Thank you, Darren. Our second story of the night will be a classic piece from one of Tales to Terrify's favorite authors, Ambrose Bierce. Ambrose Gwinnett Bierce was an American Civil War soldier, wit, and writer. Today, Bierce is best known for his howlingly funny book, The Devil's Dictionary, which was named as one of the 100 greatest masterpieces of American literature by the American Revolution Bicentennial Administration for his story An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, which is frequently anthologized and has been adapted into stage, radio, film, and television dramas more than a dozen times, and which appeared on Tales to Terrify's episode 200 in October of 2015, and for his book Tales of Soldiers and Civilians, also published in The Midst of Life, which was named by the Grolier Club as one of the 100 most influential American books printed before 1900. During his lifetime, Bierce was better known as a journalist than a fiction writer. His most popular stories were written in rapid succession between 1888 and 1891 in what was characterized as a tremendous burst of consummate art. Bierce's works often highlight the inscrutability of the universe and the absurdity of death. In December 1913, at the age of 71, after touring his old Civil War battlefields, Bierce traveled to Chihuahua, Mexico, to gain first-hand experience of the Mexican Revolution. He was rumored to be traveling with rebel troops and was never seen again. Despite an abundance of theories, his end remains shrouded in mystery. 
Sit back and enjoy with me Ambrose Bierce's The Secret of McCarver's Gulch. Northwesterly, from Indian Hill, about nine miles as the crow flies, is McCarger's Gulch. It's not much of a gulch, a mere depression between two wooded ridges of inconsiderable height. From its mouth up to its head, for gulches, like rivers, have an autonomy of their own. The distance does not exceed two miles, and the width at the bottom is at only one place more than a dozen yards. For most of the distance on either side of the little brook, which drains it in winter and goes dry in the early spring, there is no level ground at all. The steep slopes of the hills, covered with an almost impenetrable growth of manzanita and chemisol, are parted by nothing but the width of the watercourse. No one but an occasional enterprising hunter of the vicinity ever goes into McCarver Gulch, and five miles away it is unknown even by name. Within that distance, in any direction, are far more conspicuous topographical features without names, and one might try in vain to ascertain by local inquiry the origin of the name of this one. About midway between the head and the mouth of McCarger's Gulch, the hill on the right as you ascend is cloven by another gulch, a short dry one, and at the junction of the two is a level space of two or three acres, and there a few years ago stood an old board house containing one small room. How the component parts of the house, few and simple as they were, had been assembled at that almost inaccessible point is a problem in the solution of which there would be greater satisfaction than advantage. Possibly the creek bed is a reformed road. It is certain that the gulch was at one time pretty thoroughly prospected by miners who must have had some means of getting in with at least pack animals, carrying tools and supplies. Their profits apparently were not such as they would have justified any considerable outlay to connect McCarger's Gulch with any center of civilization enjoying the distinction of a sawmill. The house, however, was there, most of it. It lacked a door and a window frame, and the chimney of mud and stones had fallen into an unlovely heap, overgrown with rank weeds. Such humble furniture as there may once have been in much of the lower weatherboarding had served as fuel in the campfires of hunters, as had also, probably, the curbing of an old well, which at the time I write of existed in the form of a rather wide but not very deep depression nearby. One afternoon in the summer of 1874, I passed up McCarger's Gulch from the narrow valley into which it opened. By following the dry bed of the brook, I was quail shooting and had made a bag of about a dozen birds by the time I had reached the house described, of which existence I was until then unaware. After rather carelessly inspecting the ruin, I resumed my sport and having fairly good success prolonged it until near sunset, when it occurred to me that I was a long way from any human habitation, too far to reach one by nightfall, but in my game bag was food, and the old house would afford shelter, if shelter was needed on a warm and dewless night in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada, where one may sleep in comfort on the pine needles without covering. I am fond of solitude and love the night, so my resolution to camp out was soon taken, and by the time that it was dark I had made my bed of bows and grasses in a corner of the room and was roasting a quail at a fire that I had kindled on the hearth. 
The smoke escaped out of the ruined chimney, the light illuminated the room with a kindly glow, and as I ate my simple meal of plain bird and drank the remains of a bottle of red wine which had served me all the afternoon in place of the water, which the region did not supply, I experienced a sense of comfort, which better fare and accommodations do not always give. Nevertheless, there was something lacking. I had a sense of comfort, but not of security. I detected myself staring more frequently at the open doorway and blank window that I could find warrant for doing. Outside these apertures all were black, and I was unable to repress a certain feeling of apprehension as my fancy pictured the outer world and filled it with unfriendly entities, natural and supernatural, chief among which, in their respective classes, were the grizzly bear, which I knew was occasionally still seen in that region, and the ghost, which I had reason to think was not. Unfortunately, our feelings do not always respect the law of probabilities, and to me that evening the possibility and the impossible were equally disquieting. Everyone who has experience in the matter must have observed that one confronts the actual and the imaginary perils of the night with far less apprehension in the open air than in a house with an open doorway. I felt this now as I lay on my leafy couch in a corner of the room next to the chimney and permitted my fire to die out. So strong became my sense of the presence of something malign and menacing in the place that I found myself almost unable to withdraw my eyes from the opening as in the deepening darkness it became more and more indistinct. And when the last little flame flickered and went out, I grasped the shotgun which I had laid at my side and actually turned the muzzle in the direction of the now invisible entrance, my thumb on one of the hammers ready to cock the piece, my breath suspended, my muscles rigid and tense. But later I laid down the weapon with a sense of shame and mortification. What did I fear, and why? I, to whom the night had been a more familiar face than that of man, I, in whom that elementary of hereditary superstition from which none of us is altogether free, had given to solitude and darkness and silence only a more alluring interest and charm. I was unable to comprehend my folly, and losing in the conjecture the thing conjectured of, I fell asleep, and then I dreamed. I was in a great city in a foreign land, a city whose people were of my own race with minor differences of speech and costume. Yet precisely what these were I could not say. My sense of them was indistinct. The city was dominated by a great castle upon an overlooking height whose name I knew but could not speak. I walked through many streets, some broad and straight with high modern buildings, some narrow, gloomy, and tortuous, between the gables of quaint old houses whose overhanging stories, elaborately ornamented with carvings in wood and stone, almost met above my head. I sought someone who I had never seen, yet knew that I should recognize when found. My quest was not aimless and fortuitous. It had a definite method. I turned from one street to another without hesitation and threaded a maze of intricate passages, devoid of the fear of losing my way. Presently I stopped before a low door in a plain stone house which might have been the dwelling of an artisan of the better sort, and without announcing myself, entered. The room, rather sparsely furnished and lighted by a single window with small diamond-shaped panes, had but two occupants, a man and a woman. They took no notice of my intrusion, a circumstance which, in the manner of dreams, appeared entirely natural. 
They were not conversing. They sat apart, unoccupied, and sullen. The woman was young and rather stout, with fine large eyes and a certain grave beauty. My memory of her expression is exceedingly vivid, but in dreams one does not observe the details of faces. About her shoulders was a plaid shawl. The man was older, dark, with an evil face made more foreboding by a long scar extending from near the left temple diagonally downward into the black mustache, though in my dreams it seemed rather to haunt the face as a thing apart. I can express it no otherwise than to belong to it. The moment that I found the man and woman, I knew them to be husband and wife. What followed I remember indistinctly. All was confused and inconsistent, made so, I think, by gleams of consciousness. It was as if two pictures, the scene of my dream and my actual surroundings, had been blended, one overlying the other until the former, gradually fading, disappeared and I was broad awake in the deserted cabin, entirely and tranquilly conscious of my situation. My foolish fear was gone, and opening my eyes I saw that my fire, not altogether burned out, had revived by the falling of a stick and was again lighting the room. I had probably slept only a few minutes, but my commonplace dream had somehow so strongly impressed me that I was no longer drowsy, and after a little while I rose, pushed the embers of my fire together, and lighting my pipe, proceeded in a rather ludicrously methodical way to meditate upon my vision. It would have puzzled me then to say in what respect it was worth attention. In the first moment of serious thought that I gave to the matter, I recognized the city of my dreams as Edinburgh, where I had never been, so if the dream was a memory, it was a memory of pictures and description. The recognition somehow deeply impressed me. It was as if something in my mind insisted rebelliously against will and reason on the importance of all this, and that faculty, whatever it was, asserted also a control of my speech. Surely, I said aloud, quite involuntarily, the MacGregors must have come here from Edinburgh. At the moment, neither the substance of this remark nor the fact of my making it surprised me in the least. It seemed entirely natural that I should know the name of my dream folk and something of their history, but the absurdity of it all soon dawned upon me. I laughed aloud, knocked the ashes from my pipe, and again stretched myself upon my bed of bows and grass, where I lay staring absently into my failing fire, with no further thought of either my dream or my surroundings. Suddenly the single remaining flame crouched for a moment, then springing upward, lifted itself clear of its embers and expired in air. The darkness was absolute. In that instance, almost, it seemed, before the gleam of the blaze had faded from my eyes, there was a dull, dead sound, as of some heavy body falling upon the floor, which shook beneath me as I lay. I sprang to the sitting position and groped at the, my side for my gun. My notion was that some wild beast had leapt in through the open window, while the flimsy structure was still shaking from the impact, I heard the sound of blows, the scuffling of feet upon the floor, and then it seemed to come from almost within reach of my hand, the sharp shrieking of a woman in mortal agony. So horrible a cry I had never heard nor conceived. It utterly unnerved me. I was conscious for a moment of nothing but my own terror. Fortunately, my hand now found the weapon of which it was in search, and the familiar touch somewhat restored me. I leapt to my feet, straining my eyes to pierce the darkness. The violent sounds had ceased, but more terrible than these I heard at what seemed longed intervals, the faint, intermittent gasping of some living, dying thing. 
As my eyes grew accustomed to the dim light of the coals in the fireplace, I saw first the shapes of the door and the window, looking blacker than the black of the walls. Next, the distinction between wall and floor became discernible, and at last I was sensible to the form and full expanse of the floor from end to end and side to side. Nothing was visible, and the silence was unbroken. With a hand that shook a little, the other still grasping my gun, I restored my fire and made a critical examination of the place. There was nowhere any sign that the cabin had been entered. My own tracks were visible in the dust covering the floor, and there were no others. I relit my pipe, provided fresh fuel by ripping a thin board or two from the inside of the house. I did not care to go into the darkness out of doors and passing the rest of the night smoking and thinking and feeding my fire. Not for added years of life would I have permitted that little flame to expire again. Some years afterward, I met in Sacramento a man named Morgan, to whom I had a note of introduction from a friend in San Francisco. Dining with him one evening, at home I observed various trophies upon the wall, indicating that he was fond of shooting. It turned out that he was, and in relating some of his feats, he mentioned having been in the region of my adventure. Mr. Morgan, I asked abruptly, do you know a place up there called McCarger's Gulch? I have good reason to, he replied. It was I who gave to the newspapers last year the account of the finding of the skeletons there. I had not heard of it. The accounts had been published, it appeared, while I was absent in the East. By the way, said Morgan, the name of the gulch is a corruption. It should have been called MacGregor's. My dear, he added, speaking to his wife, Mr. Elderson has upset his wine. That was hardly accurate. I had simply dropped it, glass and all. There was an old shanty once in the gulch, Morgan resumed, when the ruin wrought by my awkwardness had been repaired. But just previously to my visit it had been blown down, or rather blown away, for its debris was scattered all about, the very floor being parted plank from plank. Between two of the sleepers still in position, I and my companion observed the remnant of a plaid shawl, and examining it found that it was wrapped around the shoulders of the body of a woman, of which but little remained beside the bones, partly covered with fragments of clothing and brown dry skin. But we will spare Mrs. Morgan, he added with a smile. The lady had indeed exhibited signs of disgust rather than sympathy. It is necessary to say, however, he went on, that the skull was fractured in several places, as by blows of some blunt instrument, and that instrument itself, a pick handle, still stained with blood, lay under the boards nearby. Mr. Morgan returned to his wife. Pardon me, dear, he said with affected solemnity, for mentioning these disagreeable particulars, the natural, though regrettable, incidences of a conjugal quarrel, resulting doubtless in the luckless wife's insubordination. I ought to be able to overlook it, the lady replied with composure. You have so many times asked me to in those very words. I thought he seemed rather glad to go on with his story. From those and other circumstances, he said, the coroner's jury found that the deceased, Janet McGregor, came to her death from blows inflicted by some person to the jury unknown, but it was added that the evidence pointed strongly to her husband, Thomas McGregor, as the guilty person. But Thomas McGregor had never been found nor heard of. It was learned that the couple came from Edinburgh, but not, my dear, do you not observe that Mr. Elderson's bone plate has water in it. 
I had deposited a chicken bone in my finger bowl. In a little cupboard, I found a photograph of McGregor, but it did not lead to his capture. Will you let me see it? I said. The picture showed a dark man with an evil face made more foreboding by a long scar extending from near the temple diagonally downward into the black mustache. By the way, Mr. Elderson, said my affable host, may I know why you asked about McCarger's Gulch? I lost a mule near there once, I replied, and the mischance has, has quite upset me. My dear, said Mr. Morgan, with the mechanical intonation of an interpreter's translating, the loss of Mr. Elderson's mule has peppered his coffee. That was Ambrose Bierce's Secret of McCarger's Gulch, as read by me. Link to my personal page will be in the show notes. That'll be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show is produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Leitze, and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives, 4.0 License. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 